Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew.
And that was Coyote Dance by Robbie Robinson and the Red Road Ensemble. In last week's show, I told you a story about my very first paranormal investigation 40 years ago this week. In tonight's show, I'm going to share with you one of a handful of terrifying experiences I've had while encountering hostile entities. While I do not classify any of these encounters as demonic, several of them possess distinct threats to my physical well-being. So if you have the nerve, turn down the lights, for this is one of those encounters. The story that you're about to hear is an amazing tale that some will find terribly frightening and may have you looking over your shoulder the next time you enter a dark basement or an old building. The thing that most people will find unsettling with this story is the fact that it is 100% true and happened exactly as it's told. I know this for a fact because it happened to me. I call this story a lesson in power. It was a mid-October afternoon in the quiet little town of Spirit Lake, which is nestled in the beautiful forest of North Idaho. As I drove through the center of town, it seemed very peaceful and serene with its older buildings and lakeview scenery. I had been here a few times before and always had an odd feeling about the place. Nothing bad, just, just odd. I didn't know if it was because the, the town's name created an atmosphere of the supernatural in my mind, or if it was something else on a more subtle level, pulling at the strings of my subconscious. Whatever it was, I was not concerned with it at the moment. I was too busy enjoying the late afternoon sunshine, as it made the changing leaves in the trees seem to glow with a fiery myriad of mixed colors ranging from yellow and orange to the most breathtaking crimson red. Reaching my uh, destination, I coasted to a stop in front of a very old and run-down church that was desperately needing a total renovation from the ground up, which just happened to be the, the reason I was there. I was a glazer at the time, specializing in custom window replacement, and someone had apparently called my office to request a bid for saving the stained glass windows and replacing all the other windows with more modern ones. The air had a cool, still briskness to it that was common for this time of year, allowing me to see my breath as I stepped out of my truck. I couldn't help noticing that although the air was very still, there were a number of red and orange leaves swirling on the ground in front of the steps leading to the entrance of this old run-down church. In retrospect, I would come to understand that what I had just seen was an omen an omen warning of the horror that I was about to walk into. Armed with nothing more than a tape measure, clipboard, and a pencil, I rounded the front of the truck heading for the church's large weathered front doors and stopped dead in my tracks when I saw that one of the doors that had been shut when I pulled up was now standing two feet open. This place was supposed to be empty. No one was meeting me here. I had been given a key that was left at my office with instructions on what needed to be measured. I stood there, frozen in place, looking at the front door standing ajar, 
trying to rationalize the possibilities. Perhaps I was mistaken, and I had thought that the doors were shut. Maybe the door wasn't locked, and a gust of wind blew the door open. Then I remembered that there was no wind. Even the strange circle of leaves orbiting in a vortex on the ground had stopped. Then I got that feeling. I'm sure at one time you all have felt it. A tingling at the back of your neck as a hair stood on end, followed by a very unsettling feeling in your abdomen, and a knowing that someone or something was watching you. Then a rational, logical thought burst through the fear-fed self-preservation instinct that was growing inside my body, and I shook my head and said out loud, You've got to be kidding me. Snap out of it, Mark. A week before Halloween, and you're letting your imagination take control. Well, that kind of broke the spell, and I found my feet leading me once again to the open door. Just as I reached the door, I looked to my right, and sitting on a broken shingle upon the roof was a very large crow. We stared at each other for a second or two, and then it let out the loudest caw that I had ever heard a crow do. It startled me so much that I dropped my clipboard and nearly fell off backwards off the steps. This was another omen. But instead of heeding its warning, I cursed at the bird and looked for something to throw at it. Recomposing myself, I decided just to get this thing over with and uh, get out of here. So I picked up my clipboard, took a deep breath, and stepped through the doorway. Man, inside, the view was so surreal. It was like a scene out of a, a Stephen King novel. The first thing I noticed was that the large room was lit up with parallel slats of filtered sunlight. Looking to the high arch ceilings, I saw that most of the outer roof was completely gone, leaving only a series of about three-inch wide baseboard separated by uh, half-inch openings running the entire distance to the roof. I thought to myself, this place must leak like crazy when it rains. And then I wondered how safe the wood floor was beneath my feet. I noticed that someone had removed all the pews, leaving one big room with a crumbling podium at the far end. I headed for the podium area to start my measurements, cringing as each board creaked and groaned as if to protest the, to the presence of my weight. About halfway to the podium, still not being able to shake that feeling of being watched, I turned around and saw that the door that I had left open was now closed, and I stopped and said out loud again, Oh, hell no! And I made it back to the front door in about three giant leaps and grabbed the door knob half expecting it to be jammed and jerked it open, almost pulling it off its hinges. Feeling both relieved and and a tad bit embarrassed, I, I found a broken board in the corner and propped the, uh, the door open, checking it at least three times to, before finally feeling secure enough to continue. Trying to ignore the creaking floor, I made it uh, back to the podium and started measuring the windows and worked my way around the entire perimeter of the main floor, looking over my shoulder whenever I was not measuring. My spirits were, were up as I finished the last window and prepared to make my exit until I read the bottom of the estimate sheet 
which read, Measure all basement windows for complete replacement. I whispered under my breath, Oh my God, and got a plummeting feeling in the pit of my stomach as I realized that basement windows had to be measured from the inside. I really had no reason to have these feelings of trepidation. Everything up to that point could be written off as either an overactive imagination, but my body was telling me something was just not right. It would not be long until these feelings were justified. I scanned the room for a door that might lead into the basement, half hoping not to find it. When uh, my eyes stopped on a door partially ajar in the furthest corner from the main entry doors. I sighed and walked toward it. When I opened the door, it did a classic haunted house squeak and groan, and I thought to myself in a sarcastic tone, that's perfect. It was very dark at the end of the stairs, which consisted of two flights running down and turning a 90-degree corner halfway down. There was just enough light filtered through the dirt-covered windows to illuminate the steps in shadows and expose the countless number of spider webs that seemed to be everywhere. Now, I hate spiders. I had nightmares as a kid that I would fall into a nest of black widows and, and be covered with hundreds of them meeting my doom, and that alone should have made me turn around and leave, but for some reason I cautiously pressed forward, using my clipboard and tape measure to clear any webs that I might encounter. When I reached the bottom of the stairs, it seemed to be much colder than it should be. I could see my, my breath billowing clouds of moisture. There was a lot of junk down there. Large boxes, broken chairs, and an old water heater and boiler that seemed to be out of commission. It was hard to make things out down there because more than half of the room was in shadows. There were six windows that I could see, and, and the good news was that they all seemed to be the same size, so if I could measure just one, I could finish quickly and get my butt out of there. I made my way over to the far side of the basement to a window that was easy to reach and began to take a measurement when I got that bad, bad feeling in the pit of my stomach and, and goosebumps all over my body stood to attention shouting out their warnings. I knew instantly that this was different. This was not my imagination. I was trembling inside, still facing the window with my back to the room, scared beyond reason at what I might find if I turned around. I started turning slowly to my left, and halfway through, I turned completely around to face whatever might be there, and my worst horror was realized. Hovering only about a foot away from my face were two pinkish-red orbs of light about the size of quarters, like two eyes staring right into mine. My back was to the wall and my entire body was shaking uncontrollably. I felt like I was about to throw up. All I could do was stand there, frozen in fear. I felt paralyzed. 
I was shaking so violently trying to stop the convulsions in my body and feeling tired, almost as if I was about to pass out. Then I saw something that shook me back to my senses. These pinkish-red orbs had a body that was not well-defined, but a body just the same. It was like the heat waves you see rising from an open oven door, a kind of translucent form that's not quite solid. I knew at that moment that I was about to be attacked by whatever this thing was, and my self-preservation instincts must have kicked in because I made a flying leap to my left and sprinted for the staircase, stumbling over everything in my path, not wanting to look back or slow down. By the time I saw it, it was too late. The entity had somehow moved around me and stood between me and the staircase. I was running full speed and had no way to stop, so I went right through it and fell to the floor instantly. Passing through what Ever it is felt like a, an electrical numbing shock. My muscles failed me, causing me to crash to the floor. I managed to get my get to my feet, knowing that I had only seconds before it grabbed me. When suddenly my body acted almost on its own, assuming a crouch, crouching back and bent knee position. As my right hand started rapidly beating against my thigh like a Hawaiian slap dancer, beating out the rhythm of a fast-paced song. Then it all came back to me in an instant. You see, at that time, I was in an apprenticeship with a Toltec shaman that I had met years before at UCLA. His teaching methods were rather unorthodox at times, and often I had no idea why he had me do the many things that I did or why he made me practice them over and over without explaining the meaning of the exercise. Sometimes I had uh, to do things that made me feel ridiculous. The strange actions and, and movements that I was now in the middle of were a perfect example of this fact. Although I didn't know it at the time, using this odd technique of body movement somehow protected my personal energy from being touched. And not only that, but I noticed that the more I did it, the stronger I felt, and the dimmer the entity in front of me became. It was as if I was taking back the energy, my own personal chi, that had been absorbed from me by the entity's attack, or perhaps I was even taking the life force from the entity. The entity faded into the shadows, and I took that moment to bolt up the stairs, leaving my clipboard behind in the dirt. I reached the still-open front door and leaped off the front porch uh, steps with my feet still running through the air, and when they hit the ground, I headed toward my truck. At that moment, I slowed to a cautious walk because someone or something was sitting in the front seat of my truck. I stopped completely in my truck, squinting my eyes to try to see through the glare of the windshield who or or what was in my truck. Just then, I heard the all-too-familiar roar of laughter coming from inside my truck and an arm waved for me to approach. It was my mentor, my shamanic teacher, laughing so hard that he could barely catch his breath to say, Marcos, you are too funny. I thought you were going to fly home when I saw you leap off the stairs. 
Then he busted into another laughing fit. I, on the other hand, was not laughing. I called him a few words that I cannot repeat on this show and accused him of setting this whole thing up, which he responded in another outburst of uncontrollable laughter. He managed to say, Yes. Why, yes, I did, and continued laughing and pointing to my pants, saying, Why, Marcos, you seem to have peed yourself. Looking down, I, um, I saw that he was right, and I shook my head and laughed along with him. I never could stay angry with him very long. After he stopped laughing long enough, he made me go back and get my clipboard and said to select two small stones from the basement wall and place them in my pocket. He explained that when a warrior battles for energy, that he should take a stone from the area as a symbol of power and conquest over that person or entity. He said that it makes a strong addition to my personal totem bag, a leather pouch containing personal objects of power. He went on to explain that he had indeed set up the encounter, knowing that there was an entity trapped within the church, and that it was a lesson for me, a lesson in personal power. He said that other entities as well as people can drain your personal life force using fear or intimidation, causing the energy to flow from you into their own energy reserves. He said this happens every day when people argue and fight, or intimidated by another person. But it is fear that is the strongest catalyst. The greater the fear, the greater the energy drain. He said that if my body had not remembered to use the warrior's stance, when it did, I may have been in danger of losing consciousness or worse. He went on to say that when one loses consciousness, the attack usually stops because there is no more fear and therefore no more energy flow. After expressing my concerns for others that may venture into this old church, he explained that only people who have had special training or natural psychics would be able to see this entity. The average person will get the feeling that they are not alone or being watched, perhaps even catch a glimpse of movement, but would never be in any real danger. They, they may hurt themselves running away, but they wouldn't be in any danger from the entity. A gifted or trained person is in much greater danger and could die literally of fright if they were not aware of what was going on. I looked at him with anger growing in my eyes and said, You mean I could have actually died down there? He grinned ear to ear, eyes sparkling, and said, Nah, I would never let that happen. You give me too many good laughs, Marcos, and we all need to laugh. Thank you for allowing me to share this story with you. I hope it will be the first of many that I will mix in from time to time between my regular shows. In parting, I will leave you with this one thought. There is great power in knowing and acknowledging the source of your fears. 
but you are defeated the moment that you surrender to them. Never allow your fears to control your actions.
And that was a little number from Red Rider called Lunatic Fringe. And now a word from my friends Gary and Ruth from the Celtic Myth Pod Show. The remains of the wild boar are going cold on the table, and the clan are resting around the fire. The ale is flowing freely, but then Uncle Ned calls for a tale. But where's the bard? Drunk and unconscious under the table. <laughs> That's when you need the Celtic Myth Poncho, bringing tales and stories of the ancient Celts to your fireside. A fresh tale from the best loved legends twice a month and available from CelticMythPoncho.com. And the bard can hear it later. There will not be a poetry or news from the lab segment in this week's show, but they both will return in their regular spots next week. In place of those segments, I have a very special treat for you that I I think you will enjoy. I have a very special individual on the show named Janar Akus Sanakwa. He is an elder, an artist, a storyteller of the Abenaki people. He is one of the people of the dawn. Born in central Quebec in 1943, he is known widely in the United States and Canada as a dedicated teacher, storyteller, political and spiritual leader, accomplished wood and stone carver, mask maker, and bead worker. Like his father, grandfather, and his great-grandfather, Sanakwa is richly steeped in the culture and traditions of Native American tribes across North America through his years of travel, study, and family influence. These traditions are an important part of his creativity, and he draws from them and from deep within himself, in his art and his storytelling. His stories make real for us the worlds of spirits and animals and the intimate connectedness of all living things. I now present the reflections of Jinar Akus Sinakwa. Aben means the land of the dawn. Aki is people from. My people are the Abenaki, the people from the dawn. I am Gerard Akus Sinakwa. And I'm an Abenaki Indian from Tadasak in Quebec, Canada. My people are a hunting people. We roamed in the Stasini forest in the, the Laurentide Plateau for many centuries before the coming of the European. From my youngest childhood, I was raised to know that all the creatures of the forest were my brothers and sisters. In our language, there is no word for animal. For we have but one father, the sky, and one mother, the earth. And if there is but one father and mother in all of creation, and all the things in between are brothers and sisters in this life. All the materials of our great civilization were provided for us in nature. There was nothing that we needed that was not provided by our mother, the earth. We know the sky is our father and the creator of all life, but it is the earth, our mother, who sustains all life and the earth was the first material of our great civilization. Her, her flesh, the soil, is what we use to grow our food, the corn, the squash, and the beans. Her hair, the grass, the bushes, and trees, the bearers of seeds and nuts and fruits also fed us. But the greatest material of the earth in our way of life was the stones that we found there 
And these stones we think of as living things, they're not dead things at all, for they are bones of our mother, the earth. And anything that has life, when you use it, still retains that quality of life. So stone is a living thing to my people. And the things we make from stone has a spirit of its own. We use the flints to make our arrow points and our knives and our tools. And so it is that I decided that I would use flints for my tools. And I gather flints down in Morrow Mountain in North Carolina, in a place where people have gathered flint for 12,000 years and made fine tools. And I flake the tools from the flint with the antlers of deer in the same way as these ancient people. And so I feel good following their tradition. It's the oldest tradition I can think of in all the world. And then from there, I go to Pacolet, South Carolina, and there is a quarry about 8,000 years old, and they're a different kind of stone, do they mine? It's soapstone, a very soft stone. And people have gone there for 8,000 years to make the bowls and the pots that they used in their households, and also to make the charms and the amulets and the sacred artifacts of the people. I only take those stones that they left behind, the ones that they found defects in in their mining. They lift these on top of the ground, and I find them, and I can still feel their hands on these pieces. And each piece is a different shape, and I see different things in them. I see my brothers and sisters in life in every piece of those stones. The bear, the beaver, the badger and the otter, the hawk and the owl and the eagle, the salmon. All these things I see and more all my brothers and sisters in life. All that I do is take the shapes that are there provided for me by these ancient people. All these pieces they left on the ground have a spirit in them, and I just bring out the spirit. I only remove the stone that encases it, all the stone that isn't the thing that I want to see. And when I'm finished, then I put in the spirit lines. I engrave them, and then I inlay them with gemstones from America all different kinds that I've been taught are stones that are used for healing or to open up spiritual gateways to the other world. I use malachite and turquoise. I use the abalone shell and the pearl and many, many more. For these are stones that have a special meaning and they too are bones from our mother, the earth. Many of the ideas that I have come to me in dreams in the darkest hours of the night my father was a dreamer, and he taught himself to wake up from dreams, and he would record very carefully the things that he saw, and so he taught me too. And so most of the things that I make are things of dreams. We have a belief that there is a dream weaver that sits in the sky. It's the one that weaves the beauty of our life like a great rug. All the brightest colors, all the brightest threads does he use, and he weaves a fine design. And when we begin our life, we walk onto this rug, and we follow these bright designs all the days of our life until we reach the end. And so, this is the dream weaver. The dream weaver is always there. It's us that need to go and visit him. And in our dreams, we intrude into another world. And so the things that we see there the creatures that we see and the spirits, they're always surprised to see us when we intrude into their world, for we are the aliens there. When a spirit intrudes into our world, we become concerned and surprised too, just the same, for these spirits are aliens in our life. But I have learned to welcome them, 
I've learned to make the way for myself so that I would be welcomed in their life, in my dreams. And I wake myself up from my dreams and I record the things that I see there on the other side in that spirit world. We put hoops around our masks and sacred things into our carvings to be a welcoming to the spirits to come into this life and teach us what they can from the other side. I hope someday, like my father, to go into the other side and teach there, and maybe they'll understand our world better too. I came into a new world when I left my dear Quebec. It was a world that I had only begun to understand in the boarding schools in Canada. But you can never be prepared for a thing that you have not seen. As much as people will tell you about a thing, it does not prepare you. And so for a long time, I had some difficulty in understanding different languages and different ways and different attitudes with life. I became entrapped in the cities of man, and I became accustomed to them in, in some way, and others I could never blend in. I became a Métis, a walker between worlds. And though I walked between two worlds, I belonged in neither one. And after a long time of this, I had to decide which world I would live in and live in one or the other. And I could. I chose the old way of life, the one that was most comfortable to me and the one I knew since the beginning of my memory and the one that made my family happy. And I think when I left my home so long ago, my mother and father knew that I would never go back, but that the things that they taught me, I could never let go of. They gave me a father and mother to go with me, the sky and the earth, and I could never be out of their sight. And these things guide me now. I see many of our old things in the museums all over the world. For I have traveled the world and I've seen many of the things of my people. I am one of the few Abenaki that has seen our wampums in London at the Museum of Man. I have a great hope in the work that I do and the work that other Indian artists do that are friends of mine. Because oftentimes when I go to museums and see our things, it's almost like my people died sometime a long time ago, maybe before 1900. We became extinct when I see the exhibits of our antiques. I would like people to see the things we are doing today, because there are more artists among my people today than there ever were. And I have been told when I went home that there are more of my cousins hunting in the Mistassini and Laurentide forest than there ever were in the past. And so I am proud to know that our life is great. Our life is getting greater. After I left my home, I walked about this earth and became sadder and sadder at the things I saw. I walked with my head bowed and my shoulders bent to see some things that seemed so terrible to me in the treatment of my mother, the earth and the lack of regard for the spirit of things. My heart broke, and I walked about with a life so small that I could carry it under my fingernails. But I took heart again in the old ways of my people after so many years, and I did at last what my father told me to do, to carve monuments to my people, small monuments. And then my life changed a new spirit came back into me, an old spirit too. And my life became so great that the sky could not cover my life. 
the mountains and forests of my home could not contain my life, and the wind and the river could not move it. In every mask, in every carving of stone, I hear a voice. I hear a great voice, like the wind blowing through the trees and the bushes of my Mistassini forest. That great wind that blows out of the mountain and bends the bough of the spruce and the cedar, whispers through every piece of stone and every piece of wood that I've carved. It whispers to me, and it whispers to our time, and it says, look now, you are ancestors to generations yet still to be born. And so I have these things to give into time, and it will last far beyond me. And though I gather this stone, and I fashion it with my hands, it is my father's heart that guides the work, and these things are not mine, for I will rise and pass from this place, and the stone in the wood will be here far beyond me, and no one owns anything in this life, but all these things are things of life, and we cannot carry them into the land of spirits, and so what we do with our hands is what we leave to this world. It's to this care and keeping that I do this work, that people will know the name of my country that has been lost from the maps, the beautiful country, the land of the dawn, the land of the Abenaki. Kuroskop is one of our great heroes. He is a true person that lived long ago, back before there was a written language among my people, and many of our stories and legends are about him. One of my favorite stories when I was young was a story about Kuroskop and the ghosts that came before him. There were many ghosts that came to try to scare Kuloskap. There were big ghosts, and there were horrible ghosts, and there were ghosts that were terribly ugly. But among them was one little tiny little ghost that wasn't very scary at all. And so Kuloskap took compassion in his heart for this little ghost, because all these ghosts couldn't scare our great hero Kuloskap. But this one little one he felt sorry for, and he pretended to be frightened by him. And so... When the little ghost saw Kuloskop's fear, he took courage in himself and he stole Kuloskop's pipe and ran off with it. And then Kuloskop sat and thought for a while and decided he didn't know if it was such a good idea to make a big ghost out of such a little ghost. Hojinkspois is a real person too, and oftentimes the stories that we have about great heroes includes Hojinkspois. There are many stories about Pajinskwes and Kuroskop. Whereas Kuroskop is a hero to our people, oftentimes Pajinskwes is a witch and a villain. There have been real Pajinskwes that lived among our people. Their name is recorded even in the books of the Europeans that came to see our people who write about our witchcraft, what, what they call our witchcraft. But in one story, Pajinskwes comes to Kuroskop where he sits on his favorite hill. Kuloskop has a beautiful pipe. It's a great big pipe. And it's enough of a pipe that 15 men could smoke it. Kuloskop always loves his pipe. But Pajinskwe says to him, I have a greater pipe. And if my pipe is better than yours, then you must leave this land and I will take control. And Kuloskop laughs and said, you cannot possibly have a pipe better than mine. For mine is a great pipe. And it's enough of a pipe for 15 men to smoke. Pajinskwes says, here, see my pipe. And she puts a pound of tobacco in her pipe, so big it is. 
and she smokes it, and when she lights it up, it is so powerful that the tree that Kuloskop sits next to cracks open. That's how powerful is that pipe. Poor Kuloskop laughs and says, Ha, my pipe is better than that. And he loads his pipe with five pounds of tobacco, and he smokes it. And so great is his pipe that the earth cracks, and it swallows Pajinskwe's, and she doesn't laugh anymore. Kuloskop taught the whales to smoke even. For when he crossed the Mackinac Straits one time, he bribed a whale with a gift of tobacco to give him a ride on his back. And the whale got Kuroskop halfway out across the straits and said, Kuroskop, now that I have you in the middle of the water, now I will set my price. What I want is your great pipe that I can smoke. And you must show me how to smoke it before I'll take you to the other side. And so it was. Kuroskop had to give his great pipe to the whale and teach him how to smoke it. And you can look out any time you see whales and you see them blowing smoke in the air. That's how they learn to smoke their pipes. One of the favorite of my brothers and sisters of the forest was the porcupine. When I was young, I couldn't have any pets. We didn't have uh, enough that we could have a pet. And so in the evening time, I would go out into the forest and meet with some of my friends there. My favorite was the porcupine. They come out in the evening time and they're not much afraid of human people because they have such good protection with their quills, they don't run away, and I could approach them. And I'd go out into the forest there in the evening and I would bring them food, things like carrots and sweet things to eat, these things they like very much. And so I had these friends. And my mother and my aunts and my uncles needed porcupine quills. I'd go out with some food and a blanket and I'd give the porcupine some food and then throw a blanket over him. And I'd shake him around a few times and then let him go. And all of his quills would be stuck in that blanket. And he'd go home and eat his food. And I'd take the blanket home. And it would take us an hour or more to pluck out all the quills that my people could use. And so the porcupine got what he needed from me. And I got what I needed from him. And even though we didn't speak the same language and we never spoke one word, we were good neighbors. And I still remember him as a friend, five generations later for porcupines. One time, my father and my uncles were fishing on the Saguenay River. They threw nets into the water, great nets they put out. And when they drew in the nets, there were many salmon in there. They were the Chinook salmon. And there was one I remember that was very big, a very old salmon indeed. And other people had tried to catch him because there were two hooks stuck in his mouth. And when my father and uncle seen these hooks in his mouth, they removed the hooks from his mouth, and then they let this brave salmon go back into the water. So they felt that he was a great salmon, he was brave, and he had a right to life. I learned stories in different places. Most of the stories that I know are from my home. One thing that I look back on now and I really love this memory is that my father in his way regarded things very simply. He kept his life simple and so his life was beautiful. But he never distinguished between frogs and toads. He thought they were the same thing. A toad is all wrinkled and knobby because it's a frog that's been out of the water too long and dried up and that's the way he taught me. There was no difference between frogs and toads. 
And I think about a story I learned in the parochial school, a story about a pond that was full of frogs. It was a beautiful pond, and there were many frogs in there, all different sizes of frogs and grasses. And the chief of this pond was a log. And the log chief, all he did was sleep at the bottom of the pond every day. And the frogs would swim about and live their lives and pay very little attention to their chief because he never did anything. He just laid in the bottom of the pond. He was a log. And then one day, a great and beautiful bird landed at the edge of the pond, a great white bird with long legs and a long, long beak. And he was beautiful and elegant and graceful in the way that he moved about. And all the frogs saw this beautiful bird and they admired him very much. And they spoke to one another saying, this one is beautiful. This great bird is beautiful. Look at him. He could lead us to greatness. He could make our pond great if he were our chief. For look at our chief. He's a log and he sleeps all day and does nothing. But this bird, he moves about so elegantly and he's so beautiful. Great things he could lead us to. And so the frogs, they got together and they held a council and they decided to make this great bird their chief. And within a week or two, there were no frogs left in the pond, for their chief was a heron, and herons love to eat frogs. Since the beginning, bear and otter have been good friends. Since the beginning of the world, back in those times when all men and animals could speak the same language, bear is always an industrious, hard-working, and steady creature in our stories, because Abenaki always followed the bear. But otter is playful and foolish, and he spends all his time trying to get out of work rather than doing any work. He loves to play. And so it's odd that you would have friends like this, Bear and Otter being such good friends. But sometimes different people make better friends than people that aren't the same. I've learned that in my travels around the world. And so I remember a story about Bear and Otter. And Bear and Otter were walking through the forest one day. And Otter is always lazy. And they came to a log bridge over a stream. And Otter tricked Bear into giving him a ride on his back, and so you see them there. And Bear, a great big animal that he is, he shook that log very badly as they walked over the stream, and they almost fell. And when they get to the other side, Otter boasts to his friends how he and Bear shook the bridge. You will hear more from Sanakwa in future shows. For now, that's about the end of the show, so I'd like to wrap it up by thanking all of you for listening. And um, if you have any questions and like to um, get in touch with me, you can reach me at marcus at shamansbrew.com. This is Marcus Leader, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network. I'm going to play this show out with a number from U2 called... She moves in mysterious ways. Thank you all for listening. Good night.